Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Sex, Love, and Addiction. This show was created to provide accurate expert information and support for those seeking insight into the painful realities of cheating and infidelity, sex and porn addiction, as well as the relationship between chronic drug abuse and paired sexual behavior, commonly known as chemsex. I'm your host, Dr. Rob Weiss, a licensed therapist, addiction specialist, sexologist, clinical educator, and author of 10 books on intimacy, addiction, sexuality, and relationship health. This podcast is a forum for discussing sex, love, and addiction in frank, fact-based, informative ways. My primary goal is to bring you clear advice, opinions, and feedback from some of the world's most renowned experts in human sexuality, trauma, addiction, mental health, and relationship intimacy. This show is sponsored by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs, which are also dedicated to providing expert-focused, highly specialized residential treatment for men struggling with sex, porn, and related addictions. You can learn more about Seeking Integrity and my work there at www.seekingintegrity.com. Now let's get started. Hey everybody, I'm so glad you're here. So, you know, okay, I know you guys think I'm ridiculous because every time I introduce someone, I think they're the best person in the world, but this is one of the best people in the world. And so, and, and I defy you to tell me I'm wrong. Folks, I have Dr. Sue Johnson with me today on the podcast. And let me tell you who Dr. Sue Johnson is. She is profoundly and meaningfully known for her work on bonding, attachment, and adult romantic relationships. Her work on family therapy and and on my field of psychology emerged at a time when we were really looking at more cognitive and behavioral interventions and improving communications and teaching couples how to negotiate. And, you know, and she just came along and said, well, what about love? Isn't love what it's all about? And can't we work with our emotions as a way of healing? And so she developed this really um, world-changing way of thinking and working as a therapist called EFT, which is emotionally focused therapy. And she, I don't know whether it's good for you or not, Dr. Johnson, but she works, she runs all over the world. I mean, this is someone who works, I think is one of the hardest working people in terms of wanting more love in the world and wanting people to stay together for the right reasons, love each other in the right ways, and build a family that can last. And so with all due respect, welcome, Dr. Sue Johnson. Hey, that was quite an intro. I'm very happy to be here. (laughs) Well, it's really very true. And I have to say, I was reading your bio this morning. I, I have to just start with this one little thing. You grew up in a pub? Yes, I grew up in a pub. And I think that's a a huge advantage for being a psychologist and a therapist because, you know, when other kids were playing with toys or reading fairy tales, I was sitting, standing on a stool, you know, washing glasses because in those days, you know, kids helped, okay? Right, you worked for the family. That's right, you worked for the family. So I was standing on a stool washing, washing glasses, watching adults interact. And I think when you do that, you know, you get kind of used to watching interactions, seeing patterns. You get used to watching people become emotional. So you're not worried about that. It just happens. You get used to seeing people get angry and then calm down, uh, seeing people flirt, seeing people hurt each other's feelings. Um, you know, you, you see the whole drama. And as a kid, I just kind of watched all this. So I think... 
it gave me an advantage somehow in that I I wasn't when I started working with very distressed couples and families, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know how to really help, but I wasn't freaked out by it. You know, it was like, oh, I remember this. This is, you know, this is the sort of drama I saw at a, in a pub. Somebody's yelling. Somebody's, you know, oh, but they really look sad underneath. As a kid, you can, you see through the veil, I think, before you learn to sort of put all that away and kind of conform you sort of see people. And I think I always saw the vulnerability in the people in the pub. I remember thinking to myself, that man's yelling, but my daddy's talking to him in a quiet voice because he sees that he's only yelling because he's sad. Now, I don't know when I thought that. Why do you remember these things? I remember that. And it was, um, I think it set me up. <laughs> To be fascinated by people's people's interactions, their conversations and the drama that happens in those, it set me up to be fascinated by strong emotions because, you know, emotions, the music and the emotion just defines the drama between human beings. It's just such a powerful thing. How did you, you said you started off kind of not knowing anything, and I'm curious how you, you know, now you're really a profoundly well-acknowledged expert in a particular way of looking at couples that I think is highly successful. How did you get from, gosh, I don't know what I'm doing, to I think I can tolerate these feelings that people are having, which, and I got to tell you folks, some therapists, and this is not on us, there are many therapists who, you know, they don't want people yelling in their office. They don't want people screaming. There are some of us who really can't tolerate every client that walks in. And, and I think Sue's right, you know, Dr. Johnson's ability to say, I learned at an early age that somebody raging didn't mean they were going to hit me, didn't mean that something terrible was going to happen. It just meant they were having a strong feeling and that it probably meant something to them. That was her early training for therapy, and uh, which is great. But how did it turn into the work that you do with love? Oh, well, um, it turned into the work that I do now on attachment and love and bonding and creating ways for people to you know, create really strong, loving bonds simply because I became completely fascinated. I started working with distressed couples. I'd done all kinds of other kinds of therapy, group therapy with distressed adolescents, with guys with uh, violence problems, uh, family therapy, um, individual therapy. I mean, I'd done them all. I was sort of feeling like, hey, I I'm not bad. I'm not half bad here. I can help people. And then I started to see distressed couples. And my goodness, the point was the drama didn't freak me out, but I, I didn't feel like I knew how to help them. Before you go on, can you define a distressed couple? Yes. From my point of view now, if you'd asked me back then, the usual way of thinking about it was it's a couple who fight all the time and can't find common ground or agree in anything. I think that's actually... Uh, the wrong way of thinking about distress. If you ask me now, I would tell you the conflict is just the inflammation that's going on. The real problem, the virus, is the disconnection the couple feel, the emotional distress they're in, the fact that they cannot find a safe place to connect that where they both feel supported and connected and safe. They They don't have any secure connection. So the problem is disconnection. 
But I didn't know what I just said when I first saw couples because all the books basically said, oh, you have to teach people deep insight into their past and really they married their father and they married their mother. Well, that didn't seem to work at all. I'd give people what I thought was deep insights. They'd nod and they'd say, oh, yes, and then they'd go back to smacking their partner or shutting their partner out and being silent all the time. That didn't work. So then the next thing that was being taught to us as students was you teach people communication skills and you teach them to negotiate and make deals for things. And um, that's still happening. That's still big in the couple therapy. And um, all the research says, by the way, that it doesn't make any difference at all. Even if you learn the skills, you can't actually use them when it really matters, when you're really, um, you know, getting hurt by your partner. Right. Because you're when you're in such an emotional state, you're not thinking clearly and all that stuff kind of goes out the window. That's right. It's it's the wrong channel. You know, you're you're in the emotional channel and that stuff's up in the cloud somewhere. But, you know, I tried that and that didn't work. So um, the conclusion, like I learned, you know, to listen to people's feelings, to take them seriously, that seemed to calm people down somewhat. But um, I just started taping my couples and watching them obsessively. I just, I would watch a couple session 10 times and I started to get the patterns in the drama that it's nearly always one person, you know, pushing for connect. They, they sound like they're being critical, but if you really listen to them. They're expressing a need. Yes, they're, they're pushing. They're mm-hmm. saying, they're really saying, where are you? Where are you? Where are you? Where are you to the other person? I'm alone. Right. You've abandoned me. Where are mm-hmm. you? And if you really listen, the other person is saying, I'm going to shut you out because I hear rejection. I'm going to hear that you're putting me down. I'm not never going to be good enough for you. Maybe I always feel like I'm never good enough. I can't bear it. I'm going to dismiss you. I'm going to evade you. I'm going to shut down and shut you out. So then you get the classic dance of one person yelling louder and louder, saying, pay attention to me. Where are you? I feel alone. And the other person putting their hands over their ears and saying, I can't bear the rejection I'm hearing. I can't bear to feel so small and inadequate. I'm going to turn my back. But, you know, what I'm telling you is it wasn't clear to me at all. You know, I, I, it, became clear. it became clear watching these tapes. And then John Gottman, bless his heart, I'm very fond of John Gottman, he started researching and looking at couples' patterns and finding the same thing. And um, I started finding that if I could help people move from their anger and their rage and their automatic dance into their more soft, vulnerable feelings and express those to each other, and I helped the other person listen, that things started to change. And I was so intoxicated by this, I actually, I was supposed to do a thesis on some obtuse abstract thing. I can't even remember what it was, okay, that my advisor came up with. When I look back on it, I don't know how I got the gall, you could say courage, but the uppertiness to do this. But I just said, no, I don't want to do that. I want to take this stuff that's happening in my office and I want to put it together on a page and have other people do it as well and, and sort of see if it works, which when I look back on it was a completely 
ridiculous. It was it was not just ambitious; it was almost psychotic. But that's how that's how we get new ideas out there is by doing jumping a little bit further than anybody else has, and maybe even further than we're comfortable. Yeah, and that's how it happens. Well, um, but what happened was um, that we we tested these interventions in uh, my first my dissertation, and I ran the data three times. Um, computers in those days used to spew out big piles of paper, right? Huge sheets, of printout sheets, right? So I just remember them being spewed out all over this office, and I ran it three times because I couldn't believe the results we got. So I thought wait a minute, wait a minute, then wait a minute, there's something really interesting happening here. And then I realized I didn't really have a name for what was happening. I didn't really understand it on some sort of deep level. And as I started standing up and talking about it at conferences, suddenly it kind of became clear to me that what we were doing in these EFT sessions was we were creating safety we were listening to people's emotions in a way that helped them order those emotions and calmly look at those emotions and tolerate them, listen to them. We were taking people into their fears and needs and helping them learn to confide in their partner in a way that pulled their partner close to them. We call them hold me tight conversations. Yes, hold me tight. Right. And I started realizing that what I was doing was creating bonding. I was creating bonding scenarios. And um, that changed everything. Well, you're really saying you reintroduced love or reintroduced the emotion of love, the feeling of the whole reason that they're there. You know, I'm thinking just as I'm listening to you, how much of an effect you've had on our field. And I want to be able to, by the way, in somewhere in this talk, because I love hearing you, but I also want to hear some things that might be helpful for the folks that are listening, because they're all very distressed couples, many of them. But I'm anyway, I'm just struck, Subai. I was reading some some little ditty in psychology the other day, and, and it said something, and you know, this is for therapists, often for new therapists will read magazines like that. And it said something like, um, you know, next time you have a really distressed and unhappy couple walk in the office, start off by asking them how they first fell in love. And when I thought of that, such a simple technique, you know, I thought they're not interested in the conflict. They're interested in re-engaging this couple and what has meaning to them and how they feel about each other. And they have become disconnected from that. We're going to remind them that that's still there. And amazingly, guess what? When they start talking about that, they become less angry. They are able to think more clearly and then they can go back to the problem. So I don't know if this is you at all, but I'm thinking, I think this woman has a profound effect on my world. That is a little bit of Sue Johnson right there, right? Yes, it is. And I think it's it's taking people back to the moments that they did feel connected when and when taking them into that longing that they had back then that on some level they still have that has become buried under all kinds of hurt and all kinds of frustration. You know, and we do do that, but we also help people see how they trigger each other, how they get stuck how they hurt each other. We help people see past the the shutting down, the silence and the anger into the fact that they're both hurting. And we help them see what's going on, that they're doing basically a bonding dance and missing each other. They're both, they're both, there's nothing that drives people more crazy than being in a relationship where you're, you're longing to be close and supported and connected and nurtured is, is there all the time. You want 
that from this person and you can't somehow reach it. You can't get there. It's like- That's like a starving person living next to a bakery. I mean, you're hungry all the time. You can smell the scent coming in the window. That's exactly right. That's exactly the kind of image I was going to use. You know, it drives people insane. So we help them. First, we help them see what's going on and that they're both hurting and it's so human to be caught in these dramas that the emotional music just kind of picks us up and, and the dance does us. And we help them have empathy for each other and calm down and realize that we're all um, human beings who need closeness and connection and reassurance and comfort. And some people actually have a hard time with that. You know, they grew up in families. As one gentleman said to me, You've got to be kidding. When I was young, and this was a gentleman who had a big addiction history, when I was young, if I even sniveled, my mother said to me, suck it up, buttercup. So I said, I hear you. What I'm telling you is I'm talking to you about a foreign place where, you know, you have the right to your feelings and they're important. And and let's talk about how the wound you have that you carry around with you, where when you showed your vulnerability, there was no one there to hold it or listen to it. And now you're struggling with your wife because when you're vulnerable, you shut down and shut her out and she's knocking on the door here. But it's so hard for you to even admit that you have feelings because you were told to dismiss them. And so we we help people understand the places they're stuck. And then we help them turn and have bonding conversations. Hey there. I sure hope you're enjoying this sex, love and addiction podcast. Before we continue, I'd like to remind you that if you or someone you know or love needs treatment for sex addiction, porn addiction, or co-occurring drug problems, Seeking Integrity can help. For more information, please visit our website at www.seekingintegrity.com. That's seekingintegrity.com. Or call us at 747-234-4325. So let me ask you about the kind of folks who might be listening today. You know, mu- much of the work of sex addiction, intimacy disorders, attachment disorders of this nature have to do with betrayal and the breaking of trust. So I'm often seeing chronic pro- disconnection in relationships where there's been lying and secrecy and maybe some gaslighting. And partners are often very angry when they find out what's been going on because they feel like there's been a whole other life and how could I not have known about that? And And I think there's also simply because it is around sex, there is a heightened feeling of betrayal and fear around the family and all of that. So the dysregulation, the distress in the couples that I see is very immediate and very much sort of identifiable as something that has happened. And not only is it something that's happened, but it's something very often that someone will say, you did this to me. You know, I didn't think, you know, I didn't know you were cheating. I didn't know this was going on. All of a sudden I get hit with... The person I thought I was married to is a completely different person and I never knew it. And trust is gone. How do we even begin to approach that? How do they begin to approach that? Well, I think the first thing is that you have to basically in your office or wherever they are, you have to reassure couples that there is a way back from that. We do it all the time. We even have EFT is one of the most researched approaches to couples therapy on the planet. We do it all the time and we have research that shows that we can help people heal these wounds 
But first of all, you have to give people hope that they can do it. But the second thing is, I think you have to really validate the nature of those wounds and you have to be able to do it in a way that the person who's inflicted the wound can begin to understand. You know, I might say to somebody... Empathy is what you're talking about. Yes, it's like I might say to somebody, do you understand that your partner is so enraged with you because she feels like she doesn't feel safe with you and because she's lost that connection with you. She's enraged with you because you matter so much. That's what it's about. And let's, I'm going to hold you and help you listen to the hurt because I think you got all caught up in dealing with your own stuff and I don't think you really paid attention to the hurt you were going to inflict on your partner And that must be very difficult for you to hear. But I'm going to help you slow down and and listen to that. And then we're going to help you heal it. So we we have a very powerful way of working over all these years. Um, That's why we get the wonderful research results we do. Our study on forgiveness of injuries in EFT, not only did we get great results, but we we did a follow-up three years later, and those results were all solid. They were all, there was no relapse, which I thought was fabulous. Well, I'd like to make sure that everybody understands how to find EFT therapy. And we'll do, we'll do all of that in just a couple of minutes. I, I want people to know what they can do to find, because you don't, it's not just seeing Sue Johnson or Dr. Sue Johnson. It's you train, you train therapists very specifically how to do this work and people come all over, or you actually go all over the world and they come to you and they get trained. So in every city, every major metropolitan city in the Western world, you will find EFT trained therapists for sure. You will, you'll, you'll find centers actually. There's a center, there's an EFT center in nearly every city and people can, if, if they don't want, if they're worried about going to see somebody, um, they can get my book, Hold Me Tight, which is pretty cheap now on Amazon. It's out, been out for about eight years and it's still selling really well. Yeah, so Hold Me Tight will show you what we're talking about. And if they, if they don't even want to read, if they don't want to see somebody and they, they don't want to read, but they don't mind computers, we even now have a, a Hold Me Tight online a course that they can do with their partner. As you should, because that's the way the world is going. I mean, couples want to sit in their living room after the kids have gone to bed and everything's quiet and work on themselves. That's right. Isn't that wonderful? It is wonderful. And I hope that some of my peers are able to catch on to that. I, I want to say, Dr. Johnson, how aligned I feel with you in my work because, and I'm going to give a couple of examples because a lot of these folks are here because of the work that I do. And in in betrayed couples, it's not unusual for someone who's been cheated on to do what we call detective work. And they will go through, you know, if you cheated on me, Dr. Johnson, I will go through your cell phone bill, your bank account. I will maybe read all of your email. I'll get the codes. And this used to be, we used to have really bad, nasty words for this, like codependent or enabling or controlling. And I used to look at these partners and think, well, my God, they're devastated. Why would you want to say that what they're doing comes from a bad place? And so when someone works with me, and this is where I feel like we align, and, and I can't believe my wife is going through all this stuff. Doesn't she trust me? I can't, it doesn't, well, first of all, no, she doesn't trust you, but she's not looking for reasons to leave you. She's looking for reasons to stay. And that is such a big shift. You know, she's not looking for that big thing to say, there it is. That's why I'm leaving. She's looking to say, oh, okay, that's what it is. I can live with that and move on as long as that's all it is. 
And I think what people need to understand about that, and this is part of our forgiveness of injuries protocol, that what we talk about is you need to help your partner feel safe mm -hmm. when you've wounded them. Yes. And, you know, how can you help your partner feel safe? So we encourage partners to say things like, well, I'd feel safe if I could look at your email every couple of days. And then the person says, if that's what you need to feel safe, then that's okay with me. But the whole thing about checking and doubting, we just talk about it in terms of it's about fear and it's about trying to find some kind of safety and predict predictability. People say to us, well, I don't want to talk about this anymore. I feel like, why does she need or he need all these explanations about what happened? Why do we keep having to rehash it and I say, well, it's not about proving how bad you are. I think that's maybe how you feel. Or rubbing salt in your wound. Right. It's about trying to become everything becoming predictable again. Your lady loved you so much that she was falling through space when she found out that things weren't how she thought they were. And she's trying desperately to put some ground under her feet. She's trying to make things predictable. So if you could help her find some ways to become, make, and, and why she needs to have a story that she can understand of how this all happened is because it makes you understandable to her. It makes you predictable. And so, oh, I get it. All right, I get it. You know, and then we help them create a story. And it's usually a story you know, addictions, from our point of view, we're attachment people. They're stories of pain. Yes, they're stories of pain. And when you cannot do what we're wired to do as human beings, what is natural for us and healthy for us. Which is connection. Right, which is take our pain to a loved one and be soothed. When that is a dangerous avenue for us, when that is an avenue that leads to loneliness and deprivation, we have to find some other way of distracting ourselves from the pain, numbing the pain, making ourselves feel high for a moment so that we don't feel the pain. And there really aren't that many. But why did he have to do that with another woman? Why couldn't he have just been drinking? Right. Well, <laughs> you know, uh, that's another whole thing. I mean, the, the other issue is, I think it depends on how you see what's happening in our society. But what I see all over the world is that it's not just the people that get caught in porn, for example, that, um, you know, we say, well, that's their responsibility. Uh, well, hang on. You know, um, the point is now that there's a huge industry selling quick, extreme sex. It's absolutely tailored to grab people, get them high, get them high and keep them there. Wait till VR comes. You think that, that what we have now is scary. Wait till you're staring, you're in the same room virtually as someone else and they're telling you how sexy you are. I know. I just, uh, that is very, very scary. We're finding substitutes for what there are no substitutes for, which is real human connection. That's what we're doing. And I don't know where we think that's going to go. 
I'm going to give you a thought about that. Just a thought from, because uh, I tend to be a fairly humanistic, hopeful person. So I will just say that um, from my perspective, it's human evolution. And we are in real time in a completely different way, finding out who is able to carry out to leave these distractions and enter meaningful connection. And who is going to get distracted and pulled away and not be able to maintain meaningful connection. And in a sense, I think technology is further discerning who's going to be successful and who isn't. Because now you really have to be good at relationship to be able to have one growing up in the digital age. And so anyway, that's just a thought. Um, rather than all is bad, I try to avoid you know doom and gloom, but I think that we are in a selective process that's been going on a long time. And now we're sort of creating our own selective process for better or for worse. We used to help people who struggled with connection, like people with Asperger's are on the spectrum. Now they sit in front of computers and they don't come to see us at all. Uh, actually, now it's the people who were on the margins and usually were able to find their own way who were now stuck in front of the computer and coming to see us. So it's almost like the the, the needle has shifted a little bit, I think, and it's it's almost evolutionary. But I, I want to say something more to you, Dr. Johnson. I am, We have another thing in common, which is pro-dependence. And I want to, want to mention it because everything you say, you know, all these years with codependency, and I would hear partners had been betrayed or violated in some way, told that they were doing it wrong. They were focusing on the wrong thing. They need to look at their own issues. They needed to look at their past. They need to look at what was wrong with them. And meaning I saw these people who were incredibly loving, doing their best to live in an incredibly very, very difficult situation, crisis situation with an addict, trying to hang in there. And then they finally get to the doctor's office and they're told, what's wrong with you? And I think, you know, under pro-dependence, what I'm trying to say, if you're a wife of an alcoholic, I'm going to say, how amazing you are that you hung in there. Isn't it cool that you love this person so much that you were willing to stay there even through the difficult times? And maybe you didn't get them sober, but, you know, you helped them stay alive. And now with our help, it is modeling you. I have to say this because the book is filled with your quotes. The belief that, that people who are trying to help an addict are only coming from love. And even if they bring you home bottles, it's because they think you'll be better with the bottle than without it, or they're not, you're not going to die with the bottle. They're just trying to do whatever they can to rescue the love they have. And then we call them enabling and fixing and all, all those horrible names. And it is from your work that all of that sprang. And so I want to thank you for that. So you're most welcome. I feel, you know, I used to work in a big hospital and I would go in and watch other clinicians interviewing families and couples and I would just find myself enraged because, you know, clinicians would just go in and label people. They, they'd label mothers with acting out adolescents. They'd say to the mother, well, you're you, it's you're the problem. When the mother's fighting for her child's life. Yes. Or, or you need to detach and let that kid struggle. Meanwhile, they end up on the street or worse. And who wants to be the therapist who told the parent to do that, to let your kid end up on the street? So we've had a very skewed way. And you touched on it earlier by saying, you know, looking at deeply looking at your past and how it plays out in the present. And it's not that analysis and our histories are not meaningful. And you have, you have many times in, a, I think, a more healthy way touched on how trauma can affect adult behavior. But you're not saying that the focus of the work is look at what's wrong with you individually. And if you figure that out, then you're going to be able to work with your partner. That's right. I, we don't say that at all. In fact, we say, look at the drama you're caught up in. Let's help you look at the dance you're caught up in. My goodness, this dance is uh, automatic. It's got you by the throat. It sparks your worst fears. It narrows down 
your options for how to, it doesn't give you many choices for how to respond. Let's look at how caught you are in this dance. Now let's look at how you can help each other out of this dance, whether it's a dance with just about uh, fighting, whether it's dance about alcohol, whether it's a dance about sex addiction. Let's look at how this happened. Let's look at how you get caught in this dance, you know, and now let's help you find the best alternative in the world to this dance of addiction and distress, which is to become addicted to the natural good stuff that we're all wired for, which is being able to turn and use other people as a resource, being able to turn and reach for another person. You know, I, I worked with one couple, with a man was a very successful man. He was a gambling addict. He actually talked about his gambling in very sexual terms, you know, how he, he just felt turned on and potent. And he said, I'm not an addict, right? I'm not, I'm not an addict because I win. <laughs> I, I said, okay, jolly good. But you, you know, actually you win at cards, but your life in your life, are you a winner? Your lady is sitting here saying she's leaving. Your partners in your business are thinking of firing you. Um, you can't sleep. You can't, you know, what, what's happening with you. And he talked about the fact that he felt completely alone as a child. The only time he felt important and special and in control was when he went out the back and played cards with the poor kids on the street and how he was better than anyone. And he felt powerful and important. And I'll bet, yeah, I'll bet people said we're proud of him, we're impressed with him, validating him. We've got a lot of emotional needs met that way. He felt powerful, right? But then he put his way through medical school by playing poker and he was good at it. But then listen to his story. He said, oh, and then I met my wife. And then I just felt like I didn't need to play cards anymore because I was close to her and I felt so special and we held each other all the time and we were in love and I felt complete and whole and special. And then what happened was she had three kids very fast, two twins that were sick. And he basically said, I lost my wife. So I went back to playing cards. That's right. And this is the story of addiction. Right. And then the boys that he played cards with, of course, said, well, what's really fun is if we start by playing cards and then we hire all these prostitutes to come in and we turn the whole thing into an enormous all-night party where we play cards, lose money, drink, and have sex with all kinds of people we don't know, right? And, and then, of course, that was the end. He's, and here's what happens to people. He became massively anxious, massively depressed. He was hiding everything from his partner. He became ineffective in his practice. He started doing wrong diagnoses for people. The thing he hung on to was cards because this is what saves your life. If other connections with other people aren't there, you turn around to find something to save your life, to make yourself feel less powerless, less lonely. Well, and I would add, I would add, Doctor Johnson, that he, you know that's a place where you do get some needs met. People do think you're good at something. People are impressed with you. People are a little proud of you. People are on your side. And even though that's just temporary and around the cards and the money, it feels like what you really want. It feels like connection, but it isn't. You know, the word addiction comes from the Latin, and it means to be devoted to. And I think that's really interesting. 
Well, I'm addicted to your work, Dr. Johnson, <laughs> but we have to go in a minute. I just, I wanted you to make sure, first of all, I want to ask if you'd come back because there's many more things I'd love to talk to you about. And second of all, I want you to tell people how they can find EFT therapy, how they can find your books, how can they get in the center of your universe? Because you rock, lady. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, they can go to my website, drsuejohnson.com and look at all kinds of things there, little clips and things. They can go to my professional website to find an EFT center in their area and an EFT trained therapist. They're all listed there by area. That website is kind of a strange website. It's www.iteeft.com, the International Center for Excellence in Emotionally Focused Therapy, iteeft.com. So, I C E I C E E F T dot com. And folks, you will be able to listen to this podcast again if you want to repeat it. So you can go back and listen for that. And I suggest, you know, they can get Hold Me Tight to read really easily on Amazon. They can find our Hold Me Tight online on holdmetightonline.com. Um, there's lots of resources for people now. We've been training professionals in North America for a long, long time. And, you know, EFT is hopping because we need to help people connect. And when they are connected, they don't need to turn to addictions. And they don't need to hate. Dr. Sue Johnson, one of the finest attachment-focused, intimacy-focused couples therapists on the planet. Thank you so much for joining us today. Folks, we will get back to you with more amazing people very, very soon. Thank you, Dr. Johnson. You're welcome. Hi, this is Dr. Rob again. Thank you for joining us today. If this show has inspired you to seek further information for yourself or someone you love, I encourage you to visit our treatment center website, which is www.seekingintegrity.com. There you'll find some useful information about the residential treatment we provide, which I think is some of the best, most useful, short-term effective intensive care you can find for sexual addiction and compulsivity, as well as combined drug sex or chem sex problems. On SeekingIntegrity.com, you can find some useful advice and direction for healing. And don't forget, if you want to write me about this podcast or reach any of my guests, please write me at Rob at SeekingIntegrity.com. I really look forward to our next time together. Take good care.